we sing hallelujah, the Lamb has overcome. That's pretty good news, isn't it? But the cool thing um, often is that we know the, the basics of the song. We know the basics of Jesus' various names like Lamb of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We've kind of been progressing our way through these. But I'm not sure we would, we've ever thought about the whys. That's why we've been going through this series, the why Easter. First, are things really that bad? Why, why do we need Easter in the first place? And the, the simple answer to that was, yeah, they are that bad apart from Jesus because we cannot save ourselves. Okay, we've got that. Good. Romans tells us what we need to know there. The, the second one is, you know, we call Jesus King of Kings, Lord of Lords, but do we really need a king and a lord? History shows us we seek them out. We put our allegiances in men and women that can lead us uh, all sorts of times. Uh, but we long for a leader we can trust, we can rely on, and one that will lead us in the way we can follow reliably. So yes, we do need a king of kings and lord of lords, and there's only one, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. So okay, two commonsensical answers off the top. Great. Then last week we looked at that idea of... Are we with him? The very understanding of Easter has a relational element that we must not forget by what Jesus has accomplished in the Passion Week and what he accomplished throughout his entire life, the 33 approximate years of his life, living in perfection, living fully as a human, point us to the fact that he has made a way to welcome us into relationship with with God in three persons, the blessed Trinity. And in so doing, we know that our identity is with him. We know that we are known. We know that we are loved. And we know that we are valued. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what we read when we come across a psalm that says you were fearfully and wonderfully made. This is what John means when he talks in John 1, 1 that Jesus has always been at work. That these things continue to be true and Jesus continues to change everything for us. But as we enter what we call the Passion Week, this would have been the day in many circles. Actually, it would have been yesterday because back then the Sabbath was on a Saturday. And Jesus would have entered into Jerusalem riding in on a donkey uh, that had never been ridden before. And we can go off on a tangent. I, I don't have time to do that today. But think about the greatness of God just for a second, always think about the greatness of God, but just for a second, think about the fact that this donkey had never been ridden. And if any of you have grown up in a country that uses donkeys, how do donkeys respond to direction? Anybody know? Well, there's an an English saying, uh, American English, I don't know if it's Chinese, uh, if it's uh, the Queen's English or not, Uh, but in American English, we say stubborn as a mule. And a mule is another word for a donkey. Donkeys don't do anything that they don't want to do. Yet here in this very limited account of what was become the triumphal entry that Matt read earlier in the day, we see that Jesus anointed and appointed a donkey that had never been ridden. 
And there's this picture of God at work, even in moving the donkey. We don't seem to get any indication that the donkey fought back or did what donkeys do best, which is nothing. And I love those small bits of the story that show us God continues to be at work in the most finite details. I don't know the story of that donkey, whether it was broken, whether it was trained and all that. I don't know, but I just love that picture that that donkey was a part of God's plan to show us Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When we move forward 2,000, let's say 2,005 years onward, and the tone of the world was going through all sorts of things. SARS had recently hit Hong Kong. Um, a new young American couple with a, a baby girl had moved to Alliance International Church Uh, Things were changing rapidly all over the world. Much was coming, much wasn't yet here. And uh, and a TV show was taking over the world. I know this seems like a long time ago. It's almost 12 years ago. But the name of that show was American Idol. Anybody familiar with it? And the tagline, when everybody got eliminated from that show, and it became a very popular song that seemed to encapsulate not just American attitudes at the time, but in a lot of ways in the English-speaking world, global feelings. And these were the lines of the great philosopher and one-hit wonder, Daniel Powder. They tell me your blue skies fade to gray. They tell me your passion's gone away, and I don't need no carrying on. In other words... It's okay to give up. You stand in the line just to hit a new low. You're faking a smile with the coffee as you go. You tell me your life's been way offline. You're falling to pieces every time, and I don't need no carrying on because you had a bad day. You're taking one down. You sing a sad song just to turn it around. You say you don't know. You tell tell me don't lie. You work at a smile and you go for a ride. You had a bad day. That seemed to convey the attitude of a great number of people around the world because the song was a huge hit and it was played every Friday in our little office of Alliance International Church because it was when Dory and I would find out who was getting kicked off American Idol and so we had our Friday coffee break with Daniel Powder. But I want to ask you the question. In the past year... I've gotten the privilege and the sadness of seeing death come to some of our dearest saints at Alliance International Church, and it's difficult. We've walked with others through their battles with things like cancer, depression, um, marriages in, in trouble. We've walked through all sorts of bad days, health issues, emotional issues, spiritual struggles, goodbyes. We live in a city where we get so good at saying goodbye that we tend to try to harden our hearts so it doesn't get too hard. So I want to start today by asking you a question. How do you deal with the bad days? How do you carry on when whatever the circumstance is has put you in a place where you don't feel like carrying on? And then I want us to look at the theology of what's called the atonement, of why Jesus would come to earth, why he would come as a man, and why he had to suffer. Because in that story, I'm going to tell you how it ends. 
You know how it ends. It doesn't end at the cross. It ends at his glorious resurrection and bringing us home. But it also ends in joy. And I want to pause it as we start today and we will come back around to the very end. And so here we go. You ready? I need you to repeat this. For this we have Jesus. Good, that was terrible. Let's try that again. For this we have Jesus. Better. Good. Keep that in mind because if we understand exactly what God has done to bring glory to himself, Easter is not about us. Please don't ever misunderstand that we think that Easter is just about us. Easter is about the glory of God and bringing people back to himself. And in so doing, it changed the world. God changed the world and it is exciting. But there was a journey to get there. And that journey started in your Old Testament. It didn't start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. In Genesis, I believe it's chapter 3, we're given what's called the Proto-Evangelion, which is when God prophesies that, we will, that one will strike the heel of the snake. And that's seen as the first evangelistic gospel-pointing part Uh, of God showing that from the moment of the fall of man, God's plan was in place to save us. That there was never a time when God wasn't going to bring people back to himself. And that journey continued on as you follow in your Bibles, you get in to the end of uh, Genesis and you find the people of God being laid out. Their, Their name is Israel. And the people of God have this tendency to be stubborn as a mule. You're going to hear that a lot as we go through our morning. And the people of God tend to not remember they're the people of God. And eventually that finds them chosen by God with a very, very strong system of law that governs them, that protects them, and that points them back to the greatness and glory of God. But they choose not always to follow that. You see, in Leviticus 12, when the law was given, or in Leviticus, yeah, uh, we're told that sins were expensive. We've already seen that in Genesis 3. We've already seen that the penalty for sin is death and that God takes sin very seriously. We've talked about that in week one of our series. But now as we continue on, we need to understand that Not only is sin expensive, but it's costly in the sense that a price was paid physically and a price was paid financially. And there were steps in place that God was showing the people of God. He wants them to be brought back to himself, just as we saw in Hosea. But actions had to be taken to make this so. And shadows had to be given that would point to a greater and a complete atoning sacrifice. But before that could be done, things had to be in place. And it started with God instituting what was called a sin offering. When you sinned, you were required by law, as we see in Leviticus, Leviticus 22, 18 through 25, give you this picture that an atoning sacrifice has to be given. And that sacrifice has to be a a lamb that is without blemish a lamb that is not spotted, a lamb that is not blind, that is not diseased, that is healthy. Really, you're looking for the best of the best because 
it would cost you greatly to offer this as a way of atoning sacrifice. You, you are giving back to God, thanking him for delivering you from the slavery of sin. And it was an expensive venture. It wasn't meant to be light. Thousands of years on, I wonder, do we take sin as seriously as the people of God and Israel were supposed to? Now, here's the thing. Don't, don't get too caught up in thinking we're so much worse than the people of Israel because if you flip to the end of the Old Testament, you come to the book of Malachi where even the priests made wonderful excuses for why sin wasn't that big of a deal to God. And God says, oh, you stupid leaders. It is indeed a very big deal. Why do you dare offer sacrifices for atonement and sin offerings that are blind, sacrif- blind animals, deaf animals, animals that are diseased? You're offering me your leftovers. And God's saying, I want the best of you. And the people didn't get it. So Israel, from its very beginning, struggled to understand that sin is a big deal, that it's costly, even though God had given them the picture of the sacrificial system. But they got a bigger picture of it, and they got a bigger picture of deliverance when God had allowed them to fall into slavery. We find our way into the book of Exodus And we find our way into God delivering the people of Israel out of the hands of slavery, out of the hands of Egypt, out of the hands of oppression, of just horrible torture and unfairness and whatever words you want to fill in. And we find this picture of, we see the people of Israel with their leader going to the Pharaoh and saying, on behalf of God, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying, yeah, yeah, if you'll get rid of this plague, I'll let him go this time. And he never does. And it gets to the point where God tells the people of Israel, this is what you're going to do. You're going to find lambs, pure and without blemish. Exodus 12. And you're going to spill their blood because blood needed to be spilled for the forgiveness of sins, for the payment of sacrifice, for the sin offering. And so to do that, what they were doing was they were marking that they are identified with God because that blood was spilled and it was put on their doors to mark that they are the people of God, that they could be saved and spared while all the firstborn sons of Israel were struck down and killed. Why? To show a few things that rebellion against God has consequences and that God was making a way for his people to be saved from slavery and delivered toward the promised land. But even that, it took Israel a long time to get it right, didn't it? I don't have time to go through all of the next rest of your Old Testament to see how they entered into the promised land, then struggled, continued. But God used the lamb to mark the homes of his people who would be freed from slavery. That was a picture of what he would complete in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to make our way through how this points to Jesus because in Christian thought, 
The act of an atoning sacrifice is the act with which God and man are brought back into right relationship. The word atonement is actually, it doesn't have great Greek roots like a lot of our words do where we can trace our way back in Latin or Greek. This one's great. In English, it's actually at one meant. Think about the word atonement, at one. You're bringing it back together. It doesn't have a deeper, longer history. It does in another Greek word, but in English, that word is at one meant. God bringing us back into right relationship with him through the perfect Passover lamb. From the very beginning of history, from the very beginning of humanity, from the foundation of the people of Israel, from their deliverance out of slavery to their continual continual rebellion, God was pointing to what he would do through Jesus Christ. We often think, well, the Old Testament is about an angry God and the New Testament is about the God that delivers us through Jesus. No, the entire Bible has been pointing to Jesus and God's plan to redeem and save the world because the lamb that was slain for our sins, the proper sacrifice had to be one without defect, had to be perfect. He had to be right with God. And no human could do that, save Jesus Christ. Listen to what one author says about it. He says, This requirement of the pure and spotless, this lamb without blemish, clearly foreshadows the sinless perfection of Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, whose death was a substitution, a substitutionary atonement. In other words, he was the substitute to pay the price for our sin, to bring us back to God the Father through himself. That's the story of what Jesus has done. Jesus going sacrificially to the cross to carry our sins as we see next, as the very Lamb of God. This image is used of Jesus throughout, and it can be confusing at times because why would we be calling our King of kings and Lord of lords the Lamb of God? And we have to understand that certain people got a glimpse into who Jesus was, none greater than John the Baptist, because now if you flip into your Bibles to John chapter 1, so we've jumped, we've moved all the way from the beginnings of Israel to their deliverance out of slavery, all the way into 400 years after Malachi last spoke. And we've jumped into the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John the baptizer, I like to call him, uh, because that's what he did. He baptized people. And in so doing, he invited them into identification with God, but he said, I'm not the one. I'm not the Messiah. There's one coming after me whose shoes I'm not able to fill. And then he saw him. And John the baptizer, this weird dude. (laughs) You ever understood? Like, think about what John really looked like to the people of Israel. He ate bugs. Not many of us eat bugs today, I don't think. Or if you do, they're at least covered in chocolate. Uh, I know it happens, so let's just ignore that. But locusts and honey covered with this uncomfortable, itchy skin of an animal. And he's going around saying, repent and be baptized, for he's coming. And when he gets this glimpse of Jesus, what does he say? 
behold, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. This is before Jesus' public ministry has started. And John, a Jew among Jews, John the baptizer, points all the way back to the Passover and says, here's your lamb. He's the one you follow. And he says it twice, verse 29, and then again in verse 36, the Passover lamb. He saw him coming and he said, this is the lamb of God. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says next. If you're reading along in your Bibles, who takes away the sin of the world amazing. John got the picture of who Jesus is and what he was going to do. And then Peter helps explain. Peter, of all people, is the guy that's going to help us understand, understand the greatness of God. Remember who Peter is. Why do I love the Bible so much? For a billion reasons, but one of them is the characters that God speaks through. Somebody like Moses that argues with God, I'm not the right guy for you, and God uses them anyways. David, murderer, adulterer. Uh, oh, just the stories go on and on. And then you've got Peter that writes these powerful letters toward the end of his life, and he's the one that denied Christ three times. Of anybody, he's the one that thought he was closest. He trusted Jesus most, and yet he denies him, and he lets him down. And in his mind, he feels like he's betrayed him. And this is what Peter says as he's trying to explained to the Jewish church that had been spread out all over Greek and Roman society at this point. He wants them to understand this is who you are in Christ. And listen to what he says in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 19. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. It's another way of saying for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Can we buy our way out? No. Have any of you, and please don't raise your hands. I'm not going to use speeding because not everybody drives and I've, I've used that one enough. But there are these, these little blinking men all over the city of Hong Kong. You find them? Anybody know what they are? They're called crosswalks. You know what those are? what a crosswalk is, where you cross the street and there's white stripes on the road. Yeah? And there's a blinking man, and when he blinks green, you're allowed to cross the street. You with me so far? And when he blinks red, are you supposed to cross the street? No? But you know you can run faster than that car. Are you allowed to run because you can get there faster than the car, technically speaking? No. So what happens if I run and... I'm getting much better at this. It is hard for me to wait. Very, very hard for me to wait, especially the one over here by HSBC. Oh, that's the worst. Anyway, I move on. When it's green, all systems go. I can cross the road. If somebody hits me, it's their fault. All is good, you know. But if I decide, and that red guy is blinking, and he's saying stop, which is the entire reason he's red, and if you're colorblind, you can still see that it means stop, and it's also beeping in a different way, in case even if you're blind. But if I go ahead and I break the law, and I step out, and on the other side of it is a policeman, can I pull out my wallet and offer him a bunch of money so that I don't get a ticket? No. 
I can't buy my way out. It's called illegal. It's called bribery, by the way, and don't do it because you'll get in more trouble and you'll actually go to jail. We can't just buy our way out of sin. We can't do it. I can't look at Mr. Policeman and say, but, but, but there was no cars. Or even better, but I saw you do it. It's not how the law works. We cannot buy our way out of sin. But the price still had to be paid. So today, when every single person in this room crosses the street somewhere in Hong Kong, I want you to think about Jesus when you cross. Because we crossed illegally, and instead of finding the law at the other side, we found the grace of God given through the person of Jesus Christ that kind of looks at us and in no uncertain terms says, you foolish people, I will pay the penalty for your selfish action. I will suffer because I will be the Lamb of God. I am without blemish. I didn't jaywalk. I didn't sin at all. That's who Jesus is. But the thing that's really been hard for me to understand, I love that Jesus came to atone for my sins because I can't do it on my own. I like that part of the story. But I do not like to suffer. Do you? Anybody in the room like to suffer? And it is really hard for me sometimes to reconcile myself with the fact that following Jesus means that suffering is a part of our way because we live in a broken world. It's not easy. To be perfectly transparent, two weeks ago I had my uh, triannual, which now, because of my current health, has become biannual medical checkup. That it's, it's not a comfortable procedure, but it's not a big deal. But in the process, we found out that I'm getting a little bit worse. This is not cause for concern. But for me, I was hoping to be moving in a direction of health, of where I don't have to take nine pills a day, That was the goal in my mind. But instead, they quadrupled my medicine because of how things had gone. And in that moment, I'm fine. Please don't overthink this. I am not suffering greatly. But in my mind, I just want to be done with this. I've had it since I'm 12. I just want it to be over. I thought we were on the right track and we're not. I don't suffer well. And so that was incredibly discouraging for me. And then I had to prepare for this message, and I came to Isaiah 53. And because I want you to hear the depth of this, I'm going to read you a lengthy passage about Jesus Christ. Because I want us to have things put into perspective. And I'm going to start with verse 2. For he grew up before him. By the way, long before Jesus lives, this is being written about him. This is God. God giving Isaiah the suffering prophet, (laughs) the prophet that, as far as we know, had no successful conversions. Nobody repented and came back because of Isaiah's message. We don't get that picture other than Isaiah himself. We don't get the prophet being completely successful, nor Jeremiah, nor for that matter, most of the prophets. But listen to the message God gave Isaiah, starting in Isaiah 53. You want the whole picture? Start in chapter 41 and read through 55. But for today, he grew up before him like a young plant 
And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So you had a bad day? You got a man of no reputation, a man that nobody even notices or worse, mocks openly. So how did this man respond? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, cursed by God is what the prophet is saying here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. These are old words that we don't use a lot, so let's just insert sin to make sure we understand. All we like sheep have gone astray. Oh, no, see, I skipped ahead. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. Upon him was the suffering that could bring us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The heart of sin is us turning to our own way rather than God's. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He wasn't complaining. Like a lamb, oh, you hear it? like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his, as far as, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, Yet, as you go down to verse 10, this is what God said, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Our suffering servant... came to atone for my sin and your sin to show there is a way to obey the Lord and it would be through the person of Jesus Christ. He came to make a payment and a sacrifice that we could not do on his own. Interestingly, Charles Swindoll says it this way, they thought something was wrong with Jesus. They thought something was wrong with him, that he had done something to deserve God's judgment. But it's the other way around. He carried our guilt and our sorrows, literally our spiritual, sacri- spiritual sickness and pain brought on by our sins. And he paid terribly on our behalf. We're to look at the Lamb of God and understand just what he was doing. He was paying the price 
that we might be with God for now and for all eternity. And in so doing, he was also showing us a way to walk in this world, paying as he would the price to be a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The King of kings and Lord of lords came to serve others. And he says, follow me because I came to serve and I am here to give my life as a ransom for many. Who are the many? This could be argued about for day and night, but the baseline we know that if we believe in Jesus Christ and call on him and we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, we will be saved. The many are those who call on the name of Jesus and make him Lord of their lives. Jesus paid for us and the expense was greater than we could ever bear on our own. When Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom, the focus isn't on who gets the payment. The focus is on his own life as the payment and on his freedom in serving rather than being served and on the many who will benefit from the payment he makes. He does these things with a very specific point in mind and this is what brings us back into the perspective We begin in the Old Testament knowing that atonement for sins has to be made, knowing that God would deliver his people out of slavery and he would do it gloriously through the Passover. But the Passover was but a shadow of what was coming through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, our suffering servant, our atoning sacrifice, a ransom for many that leads us to the point where we find Hebrews telling us, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all who've gone before us, all who sit with God, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And I want to pause there as we look at Hebrews 12 too. And I want us to say, the writer of Hebrews, whether it's Paul, an influencer of Paul, whoever it was, He's making a point and pointing us back to Jesus, even in saying, let aside, cast aside every weight that so easily entangles. You know who else said that? Jesus. Come to me, everyone who's weary and heavy burdened, who is weighed down, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. The Hebrew word there you would use would be, I will give you shalom, wholeness in your soul. I will give you that. And so the writer continues, then we run with endurance the race set before us. He doesn't say the race is always easy. Uh, One of my children is is a track and field athlete. And there's at one point, there's a distance that she no longer, oops, they no longer enjoy running that far. And I don't understand this because the longer we go, the happier I am. It's great, like distance is my friend. But at some point on the race, any of us, if we're running full bore, we begin to slow down. And we often take that into our spiritual lives and we get really excited and we push, 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 push. But because we do so much in our own strength, we slow down. We quit seeking him first 
and the things of, this, of his ways. And we begin to seek first the things of the world. And we begin to slow back into patterns that aren't glorifying. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to correct this pattern, this cycle, this pattern that's gone from the beginning of the people of Israel all the way to today. And what is he saying? He's reminding us to run with endurance the race set before us because not when, but things will get difficult. You will have a bad day. So let's think about who else had a bad day and how did he approach it. What's, what's the author say next? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, Mike, in theory, I get what you're saying. But it's hard. One of my dear friends and co-workers faced a battle last year that broke all of our hearts to see them have to suffer through because of anyone, we would not wish this upon them at all. But often we would see this picture of joy as they would go through treatment, as they would go through pain, as they would go through suffering. There was still this working through the contentment that is found only in Jesus Christ. They didn't say they loved everything about fighting this disease. But in their heart of hearts, you could see them learning to find peace in God. And it was a tremendous testimony to watching what a relationship with the living and high God looks like and watching him care for them in their greatest point of need because they understood the rest of Hebrews 12 too. Here's what he says or what the author says, looking to Jesus. When you're running, you're running toward the finish line, right? If you're in a race, even if the finish line is far off, you're still just trying to get to that finish line. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is the finish line. (laughs) For all eternity, he's the finish line. He brings us back home. And who for the joy set before him, Can I say that again? Who for the joy, underline in whatever, if if you use the Bible app, highlight it. If you have a real Bible like three of you out there, underline it, circle it, draw it. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Same word in Greek that is used just the line above. We with endurance run the race. Jesus endured the cross with joy. I can't say that strongly enough. This is a man that every ounce of skin was ripped off his body to the point most likely you could see his spinal column because he had been whipped and suffered so severely and he did it with joy. Please don't think that joy here means he was smiling all his way to the cross. There is no indication of that whatsoever but he took joy in knowing he was obeying the Lord. We see that, Father, if you could take this from me, great, but not my will, but yours be done. He's saying, Lord, I will go where you take me. My Father, I will follow you. And Jesus tells us we are to follow him. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame And his reward is he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he invites us to come with him. John Piper says it this way, if Jesus had not willingly died, 
neither he nor we could be forever glad. See, that's the thing. Circumstances don't define our disposition. Disposition is a fancy way of saying attitude, sorry. Circumstances must not define your attitude. That's Jesus' job. Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And because of that, we can be forever glad. We don't have to love where we find ourselves. But we know that he is with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that we can walk with joy toward him through even the greatest suffering because he's got us. And the reward at the end of the day is coming home to him for all eternity. This isn't all there is. So in how we handle those bad days, we get to be light to a dark world. We get to show them that we will run that race without giving up. Unless you think that I have forgotten what today is, I finish with a rugby example. The fastest man in rugby sevens is an American. Just got to throw that in. And on Friday night, you see this man. A, a rugby pitch is roughly 110, 120 meters long. It's long. And he's standing at one end and his try line, his score line is way at the other. And he's just waiting. And Team USA gets the ball and everybody sees what's coming. And the ball moves across and he steps a little forward. And then all of the sudden, he receives that ball and he runs like no one else can run. And he does not slow down till he's crossed the line. He does that every day, <laughs> a lot. He can't tackle for anything, but man, can he run. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know everything you face in this room, but I know Jesus and my God and my King understands exactly where you are right now. And he says, I'm with you. My atoning sacrifice says, I've already paid this suffering and this price for you. I'm bringing you home. Come back to me. Seek me first. And I will get you through whatever you are facing. Paul wrote it this way. He said, in him we have redemption through the blood through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him, for our salvation, for our atonement, and for his glory. Our response when you've had a bad day, may we handle suffering with the joy that's set before us that God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he is always leading us toward himself. He's paid the price. He's given us the why of Easter. And through Jesus, it was done with joy. For this, we have Jesus. Lord, thank you. It's hard for me to understand that you, being fully God, would choose to suffer on our behalf so that we might have union and relationship with you, but you did it. And we never come to the end of thanking you for that. So, Lord, we pray that in all things we would be able to set the joy before us that is in knowing you and say, for this we have Jesus. Amen.